let us now read together what we confess. First of all, what we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 29. It's on page 512 of your Book of Praise. Or I'm sorry, Article. Yeah, Article 29. And I just want to read one paragraph of that. It's on page 513. It is the second paragraph from the top where it starts, those who are of the church, those who are of the church may be recognized by the marks of Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, flee from sin and pursue righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or left, and crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. And now let us turn to what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12. There it speaks about Christ and also deals with the marks of the Christians, just like we read about in Article 29 of the Belgian Confession. Lord's Day 12, page 527. Why is he called Christ, that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may, as prophet, confess his name, as priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 48, the stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that also includes you, boys and girls, what does it mean to be Christian? A few months ago, I asked this question of some of my catechism students. They came up with various answers. But the most prevalent answer they gave was that a Christian is someone who goes to church. And that's true, of course, Christians are churchgoers, at least practicing Christians are. But is that the most prominent identifying mark of a Christian? We just read about the treatment and imprisonment of Paul. Was he arrested because he attended church? No. 
He was arrested for what he did outside of the church. He was arrested for putting his faith into action. He did not treat the church as a rest home for the saints, as a place from which to escape the world, but as an institution of training for spiritual warfare. The church to him was a springboard for action. Paul says to King Agrippa that he preached to the Jews and Gentiles that they should repent and prove their repentance by their deeds. He says to him, that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if you today were to be arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Oh sure, your friends and your co-workers know that you profess yourself to be a Christian and that you go to church every Sunday. But that in itself does not mean much. People don't mind that you go to church. They don't mind that at all. They have their own social clubs and interest groups to which they belong as well. But when you are a Christian who goes to church every Sunday, and then you are supposed to be radically different. And being a Christian is not having a hobby of some sort, which is separate from the rest of your life. For what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you can only answer that question if you know who Christ is. The Christian identity is completely tied up with the name of Christ. The composers of the Heidelberg Catechism understood this very well. And that is clear from the way they arranged Lord's Day 12. For with Lord's Day 12, we come to the official title of the Lord Jesus, namely Christ. But the composers do not want to speak about Christ apart from the word Christian. You cannot take Christ out of Christian. For if you do that, then there is nothing left. It is only because of Christ that anyone, that you and I, can be called a Christian. And so if you want to understand what a Christian is, then you must want to know, then you must have to know about Christ. And you must become like him. Summarize this Lord's Day under the following theme. Through Christ, I have become a Christian. We look at two things. Who Christ is for the Christian. Secondly, who the Christian is through Christ. Not everyone knows what the name Christ stands for. Some people think that it is Jesus' nickname or something like that. They have no idea of the significance of that name as such. We, however, know that Jesus is his personal name, but that Christ is his official name. Jesus was the name given to him at the time of his birth in accordance with the instruction of the angel. And that name, Jesus, was a fairly common name. It is the Old Testament name, Joshua. And many boys in that day and age were called by that same name as Jesus was. In some Latin American countries, it is still the custom today to use that name, Jesus. 
However, no one would ever name his child Christ, for that would be absolutely blasphemous. The name Christ can only be given to one person, and that is the person whom God himself would anoint and appoint. There can only be one Christ, for who is Christ? Christ is the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew name for Christ. Translated into English, it means literally the anointed one. And so it is actually better to speak about Jesus, the anointed one, rather than Jesus Christ. For then right away we understand what that name refers to. During its entire existence, Israel was looking for the one to be anointed to the Messiah. As a matter of fact, it was the national purpose of Israel to produce the Christ, the Messiah. For that reason, the authors of the New Testament also wanted to make sure that everyone understood who Jesus was. The Apostle John writes in John 4, verse 25, that the woman at a well said to him, I know that Messiah called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She and the people with her were anxiously waiting for that anointed one. Even though they did not know exactly what, they knew that he would do great things. And that is why there was such great joy when they discovered that he had come. Just listen to what the Apostle John, in his chapter 1, verse 41 of his gospel, writes about Andrew, what Andrew says to his brother Simon. He says to him with great excitement, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Right after the death of Christ, many Jews were converted and became convinced that Jesus is the Christ but they usually didn't call them Christians yet, themselves Christians. They called themselves Messianic Jews. With this, they meant to say, we are what we always have been, Jewish people, but we have found the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. We are Messianic Jews, or we are Jews for Jesus. But, as we can read in the book of Acts, with time, the Christian or those people, the followers of Christ, became known as Christians, and they wore that name proudly. The whole concept of anointing has been part of the identity and consciousness of God's people from the very start. Already to Moses in the desert, the Lord gave very detailed instructions about anointing. In Leviticus 8, the Lord gives his command to anoint Aaron as high priest. Very elaborately, the Lord prescribes what should take place. First, Aaron and his sons had to be washed with water. They had to be clean. They had to smell good. Moses was then told to clothe Aaron with a coat, gird him with a girdle, and put an ephod upon him. And then he was given a breastplate wherein the Urim and Thummim were put. 
After that, a turban was put on his head, upon which was placed a golden plate, the holy crown. And it was then that Moses took the anointing oil and poured it on Aaron's head, so that it would flow down his beard and onto the rest of his body. And the same procedure was followed with Aaron's sons. The anointing of the priest was a very serious and very elaborate business. But not only were priests anointed, so were kings. Think about the anointing of David as king as described in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord commanded the prophet Samuel to do the anointing. God himself would choose the king and he instructed Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. Samuel was not was told not to look on the appearance or the height or stature of any of the sons of Jesse. For as the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Seven sons passed before Samuel, but not one of those seven were chosen by God. And then after an afterthought, David is brought from the field. The Lord had chosen him. And in the midst of that family, Samuel took the anointing oil and anointed David king over Israel. He was God's special man. Also, prophets had to be anointed. We read in 1 Kings 19 how Elijah anoints his successor, Elisha. Elisha had to be officially appointed and anointed by the Lord to take his place. But why were those ceremonies performed? What was their purpose? Well, oil in those days was a very important and useful component of everyday life. Without oil, life would be very difficult. For oil was used for many purposes. The people used it for all kinds of things, for cooking, for trade, for the lamps, they also used it for medicine, for burials. Special oil was also used to refresh yourself with. And so since oil was indispensable for life, it was also considered indispensable for the proper execution of one's office. When someone was anointed with oil, this was a sign that God designed him for a specific task. When, Israel, when Aaron was anointed as high priest, then he could be assured that God had appointed him to the office. And for that reason also, an elaborate ceremony was necessary in order to impress that upon him and upon the rest of the people. They had to realize that something very important was taking place and that the Lord God himself had his hand in it. The oil itself was also very significant. For when we refer to anointing oil, we refer to a very special oil. It was only used in the anointing ceremony. For please don't think that such an oil was some kind of greasy substance. No, that special oil was more like the perfume that we use today. And it had a wonderful smell. It was made by skilled perfume makers who used the choicest spices, such as myrrh, 
cinnamon, sweet cane, etc., and blended them together with a little bit of olive oil to make a most fragrant lotion. And as soon as that anointing oil was poured all over the person to be anointed, an explosion of wonderful aroma would spread into the nostrils of those present. And that wonderful aroma would remind you of what heaven is like. In heaven, there is no smell of decay. In heaven, there are no putrid odors. In heaven, there is only perfection. And all the senses have to drink in that perfect atmosphere that you will encounter in heaven. The smell of that oil would alert you to the absolute bliss that awaits those who belong to the Lord God. Someone anointed by God had to have that smell of perfection, that smell of God on him. And that brings us to the name of Christ. As we saw, it is the same as the Hebrew name Messiah. Both mean the anointed one. All the anointing that was done in the Old Testament pointed to him. Why? Well, he had been appointed and equipped by the Lord God from eternity to perform the tasks that God had given him. And in so doing, he had to have the smell of God on him, for he was God, he is God. He has to be absolutely perfect. He had to be just like Adam was before the fall into sin. In all his words and actions, Adam was pure because God made him so. He was holy and righteous. And Adam was given many tasks to perform. And in the performance of these tasks, he was to represent God here on earth. But Adam sinned. And because of sin, he now stank to high heaven. The only way he could once again be in God's presence would be if that stink was taken away. And that is what Christ did. Through the blood of Christ, those who believe in him can be washed and be made as white as snow. He removed the stink of sin and death. In spite of the fall into sin, God maintains his covenant with us. He sends us his spirit. And he especially lavishes his spirit upon the leaders of the people so that they may point the people away from Satan and to the Lord God. For that is ultimately what prophets, priests, and kings do. For what is the task of a prophet? To proclaim God's word and to lead a life of repentance. With his whole being, he had to breathe the word of God. Look at some of the Old Testament prophets. Think about Jeremiah. His life was a living prophecy. And in his prophecy, we read about the deep struggles that he had as he proclaimed God's word. Just about everyone denounced him and heaped scorn upon him. But in spite of the hardships and the persecutions that he had to endure, Jeremiah continually, faithfully proclaimed God's word. 
And think about the other prophets, such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, whom we have been looking at lately, to mention only a few. All these men were mouthpieces of the Lord God. They spoke God's word. They had the smell of God on them. And they taught the people to expect their salvation from God alone. And these men did so fearlessly. Same thing is true of the priests. The priest stands between God and man. He makes sacrifices. Through his words and actions, he teaches the people that everything belongs to God. God is the one who made the earth, and therefore he must also be acknowledged as such. The offerings are meant to bring that truth home to the people. And the people had to give the best of their harvest and the best of their animals for that very reason. Another very important task of theirs was to intercede for the people with God because of their sins. And the blood of the animals indicated that death was the result of sin. And in this way, the priest pointed to the coming of the lamb who would be slaughtered. They would point to the one for all sacrifice of Christ. And kings had to rule with justice and mercy. They had to protect the people from harm. They had to make sure that God's law of the covenant was kept. For only in the keeping of God's laws can you be safe and content, and can you find peace? But look at how the catechism explains the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the answer, it is clear that the, all the offices in the Old Testament point to him. And because of sin, man no longer had the smell of God on him. He was no longer able to perform the duties required of him as an image bearer of God. But now Christ, as the anointed of the Lord, restores man to his threefold office. For all those prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament were fallible men. They only pointed to the coming of the anointed one, to Christ. And the Catechism tells us that Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher. Our chief prophet. And that is to say, no one is higher than he. The, old, the prophets of the Old Testament were very important and significant and pious figures, but they were nothing compared to the chief prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus was also known as the Word. For if there's anyone who embodied the message of God, if there was anyone who's Life indicated God's message to mankind. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Catechism also uses the word teacher. He's also our chief teacher. That's also what a prophet does. But he doesn't just teach with words, but he teaches with his whole life. And Christ was a great and wonderful example to his disciples and to everyone. He lived the words of God like no other. He did it perfectly. The Catechism also says that he is our only high priest. The emphasis is here on the word only. There's only one high priest. He is unique, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The succession of high priests stopped with the coming of Christ. Before Christ, high priests would come and go. 
Christ, however, is not a high priest according to the order of Aaron, which was dependent upon succession, but a high priest, as we saw this morning, uh, to the order uh, according to Melchizedek. The high priest, according to Aaron, had to bring sacrifices time and again. Christ, however, only had to bring one sacrifice, and that sacrifice was enough. And that sacrifice was and is valid forever. And for that reason, no other high priests are any longer necessary. There are no priests in the Reformed Church. But it says more, or at least no priests as you have it in the Roman Catholic Church. We have priests as office where we show ourselves to be thankful, where we show ourselves to want to give everything that we have to God. But it says more about Christ's high priestly function. Not only did he sacrifice once for all, but he also continually intercedes for us. He is the one who opens up the gates of heaven so that we may enter into the Father's presence and smell the sweet aroma of perfection. And he is our eternal king. That is to say, there is no end to his rule, and he rules no matter how difficult Satan makes it for us and how destructive his actions are. Nothing and no one will stand in the way of his rule. But how does he rule us? He rules us, the Catechism says, by his word and spirit. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, how powerful the word of God is? One word and the world and the whole universe is created. God is the creator, the author of all the energy in the whole universe. Do you know how much energy there is in the sun alone? All the energy produced here on this earth from the beginning of creation up to now is only one billionth of the energy of the sun in one second. And there are thousands of suns in the universe and some of those stars are thousand and thousand times bigger than our sun. The amount of energy in the universe is absolutely mind-boggling. God created all that energy by his enormously powerful word. And God's word is not to be separated from his spirit. He rules, the catechism says, by his word and spirit. God's Spirit works in and through the Word. God's Spirit grabs you through that Word. All the power of that eternal King is accessible to all those who believe. It is accessible to you and to me. You know how comforting that is? We see Satan's work all around us and in us. We see how destructive he is. We see how he tries to undo everything that God has made and done. Look at how he did this in the way that he tried to prevent the birth of the Son of God. And look at how through the ages he has tried to destroy the church. See how he is at work in our midst today. How he tries to undo, for example, the communion of saints. And think about how he tries to work in our hearts to go against the will of God. 
and see how he is at work in the world. But now we have our eternal king, Jesus Christ, who rules by his word and spirit. That, brothers and sisters, is who Christ is for the Christian. And now, and that brings us to the second point, we can more easily answer the question as to who a Christian is. That is now easily and very quickly dealt with at this point. For as we heard at the beginning, you cannot take Christ out of the Christian. We know who the Christian is through Christ. A Christian reflects his nature. Christ is the head. We are the body. We define a Christian not according to our own standards, but according to the standards of God himself, the standards that he set. The Catechism asks, why are you called a Christian? And the answer we are given is, because I'm a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in his anointing. All those three offices which were so important in the Old Testament and which were emphasized through such elaborate ceremonies, those offices you and I now have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those ceremonies, as, his word, as, as it were, have been performed now also on us. God anointed us with his Holy Spirit. Through Christ, we too are prophets, priests, and kings. And so what does that mean now? in your office as prophet. Well, as prophet, we have to confess the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Word. What does that mean? That means you have to speak the truth, God's truth. It means that you have to speak to others about your salvation, just like Paul did to the Gentiles and to the Jews as he confessed before King Agrippa. And we're also teachers doesn't just mean that we teach a lesson like a school teacher does or like a minister at catechism classes. No, our whole life is dedicated to teaching God's will to others. First of all, to our children, to those within our own household, to those within the church and those outside of it. And we have to reflect Christ in that regard. Christ taught God's ways every single moment he was on earth. And now through his spirit, he continues to do that. A Christian stands up for what he believes, just like Christ did. That doesn't just mean that you stand up to immorality and immoral practices. It doesn't just mean that you become active politically and stand up against things such as abortion and sexually, and sexually promiscuous practices such as idolatry and homosexuality. You have to do that, of course. And, but it means much more than that. To be a Christian means to be like Christ in the way that you conduct yourself. It means that you are able to forgive others. It means that you seek the welfare of your fellow human being. Sometimes I hear that people leave the church or they don't want to gather together anymore because the people aren't nice enough. And that's true. Sometimes we aren't. 
But how are you defined? You are defined by Christ. And you are able to forgive. A Christian is someone who realizes that he himself is a sinner. He is humble. To be a Christian means that you are kind and full of compassion. It means that you deny yourself just like Christ did so that you can serve others, including and especially your enemies, because that's the hardest. It's easy enough to be nice to your family and to the people in the church. It's much harder to reach out to those who make your life difficult or to those who criticize you. Let me ask you, are you a Christian? Oh, I know you go to church just because you're here. But do you have the smell of God on you? Or are you odious to those people who know you well? And what about you and I as priests? It says that as an anointed priest, you will present yourself as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Christ. Christ made himself a living sacrifice for our sakes. He gave himself totally. We read about that this morning in Philippians 2, how he emptied himself of all the glory that he had. Everything that he had, he threw away for our sakes. And now we have to do the same. For that is what you do when you belong to him. You confess here that your whole life, all of your possession, including your business, your house, your wife, your husband, your children, your friends, everything that you have here on earth, you will sacrifice, give up for the sake of Christ. That doesn't mean, of course, that you throw it away, but it means that God is more important to you than any of those other things. You are willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ. It is not for nothing that the Lord Jesus said in his charge to his disciples early in his ministry, as we know from Matthew 10, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That, beloved, is your life as a priest before God. And you're a king. And do you know what that means? It means that because of God's word that lives in you, you are ruled by God's word. And that you will also rule yourself. You will rule over all of God's creation. There is no end, brothers and sisters, to the blessings that we will receive through faith because we are God's anointed. There is no end to it. And so who is a Christian? A Christian is someone who reflects Christ here on earth. I know that is not easy. But through God's Spirit, 
we are able to do it. A Christian is someone who has the same power and the same authority and the same blessings as the Son of God. We are given eternal blessings. And that must show in our lives. And so show that in this coming week, in the coming months, in your whole life. Let your confession show that you are a Christian. Don't be a liar. Let God's blessings flow through you and to you. Amen.